So last Sunday I preached on the biblical doctrine of baptism, and this is going to be a follow-up to that part two. This is a very, very important uh, subject in the Bible, baptism. It doesn't affect salvation, but it is a biblical command that all believers are to obey. So if you have not submitted to the Lord in the, the ordinance of baptism, then I would encourage you to consider that very carefully. Someone said that the, the job of a preacher is twofold, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So that's part of my goal today is to afflict the comfortable if you are not where you need to be with the Lord. I discussed last week the biblical roots of baptism in the Old Testament ritual and ceremonial purifications by water. I mentioned that Jewish converts or proselytes to Judaism were self-immersed in a mikvah. A mikvah was a baptistry. It was an immersion pool. And you have a picture here of two mikvahs in Jerusalem. And both of these are along what has been labeled the mikvah trail. So there's a hike for you. The mikvah trail in Jerusalem. And so far, 700 of these ritual bats have been unearthed throughout Israel. 700. 200 are found in Jerusalem, and 50 of them near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, on the southern side of the Temple Mount. You know from reading the scripture that the extra-biblical commandments at the time of Jesus, they served as a fence around the law. They were called the traditions of men, and the Pharisees and scribes kept them uh, meticulously. And if a Jew violated this body of tradition... They had to be cleansed by water, cleansed by water. Now, these traditions of men that Jesus rebukes in Matthew 15, I'll read you the scripture, they were oral traditions at the time of Christ, but they were written down centuries later and codified in the Mishnah and the Gemara, two documents which were commentaries on the Old Testament law, and the Mishnah and the Gemara together comprise what is called the Talmud. You've probably heard that word. It means learning, Talmud, learning. But in Matthew 15, 7, Jesus says, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition, by your oral traditions. And many people, many religious denominations do that today. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying these people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Many of the cults do exactly that. I also mentioned last week that the baptisms that John the Baptist were performing were baptisms unto repentance. In other words, in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, the presentation of the Messiah to the nation, the Lord Jesus. Jesus submitted to John's baptism. John objected to it, but Jesus says, no, it is necessary for me to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And in doing that, he took his part identifying with sinners who needed repentance 
which he did not need. He was, the, he was the perfect lamb of God. His baptism also inaugurated his public ministry. There was the, the recognition of uh, the Father's voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Two citations from the Old Testament joined together. We saw last week also that the requirement for biblical baptism by immersion is genuine salvation. And that is what we clearly see in Scripture. And we gave you many, many texts which spoke about they were saved and then they were baptized. So salvation and baptism are two separate but related things. Believers in, in Christ should be baptized. They should be baptized. As a matter of fact, Paul never entertained the idea that someone could have faith in Christ but not be baptized. So the, the one salvation results in the other. Historically, there is no firm evidence for infant baptism before the latter part of the second century. That's a big time gap. And the first reference to, to a baptism by means other than immersion, sprinkling or pouring, is found in a document called the Didache. Didache means teaching. Uh, it was written about 120 to 150 A.D., sometime in that period. And it says that baptism by pouring was viewed as acceptable alternately only when it wasn't possible for a person to be immersed. Maybe some physical condition present, prevented that. So the, the Didache allowed for pouring, but the first documented case of pouring instead of immersing came 100 years later in 250 A.D. And as late as the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas, Catholic theologian who lived from 12, uh, 1225 to 1274, he stated, it is safer to baptize by immersion because this is the more ordinary fashion. So here, long after the time of Christ, centuries later, a Catholic theologian in the Catholic Church baptizes by baptizes babies, sprinkles babies, he admits that the biblical mode of baptism was by immersion. All right, so what I want to do now is start looking at some difficult texts. And sometimes you read your Bible and you come to verses and you just sort of skip through them and kind of put it on your mental notepad. I'll get to that later. So the go-to verse for everybody who teaches baptismal regeneration the idea that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. The go-to verse is Acts 2.38. So turn to Acts 2 and verse 36. So this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. I'm not going to take the time to read the whole sermon. It's a good sermon. But in verse 34, 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It says, now when they heard this, that message, they were cut to the heart. That's the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And the emphasis in this, the verse here is on repentance. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. So on the surface, this would appear you need to repent and you need to be baptized for the remission of sins. This idea is known as baptismal regeneration. Regeneration simply means new life. When does God impart new life to a person? And the baptismal regenerationists say, well, when they're baptized, when they're immersed in the water. The Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, some Lutheran churches, most Anglican churches believe in some type of baptismal regeneration. They might nuance it a little differently, but they believe in it. The churches of Christ and the disciples of Christ, although they may not technically use the term regeneration with baptism, they believe baptism is a necessity to be saved. Cyprian, 200 to 258, somewhere in that time frame, he's considered the laver of saving water, the instrument of God that makes a person born again. I remember when uh, I went to visit a Catholic priest one time who had professed to be born again. So Brother Bart Brewer asked me if I'd go with him to visit him, and we took him to lunch. And, and uh, Bart, I can remember Bart saying, well, that's tremendous. I mean, you, you're born again. And that's how Bart would go. I mean, that would be, be wonderful news. Tell me about it. And he's sitting there, and he looks at us both, and, and he says, well, I was born again when I was baptized as a baby. So it wasn't a true born-again experience by any means. And uh, so we, we shared the gospel with him, and he ended up walking out of the lunch and leaving us with the bill. Uh, <laughs> I always remember that. Alexander Campbell. Probably you've heard the word Campbellites. He started the Disciples of Christ, and he's, he's a representative of this position, and he states, to every believer, water baptism is a formal and personal remission or purgation of sins. The believer never has his sins formally washed away or remitted until he is baptized. So I'm going to start off with this, and we'll look at this verse more in depth in some other verses. But with this statement that I put in your notes, any interpretation of a verse which contradicts other scriptures that have been clearly stated on a given subject or doctrine cannot be the correct interpretation. Would you agree with that? And the New Testament clearly indicates that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ in many scriptures where there's no mention of baptism. So that idea that the, the scripture is not contradictory is known as the analogy of faith or what is also called the rule of faith which states that holy scripture is its own interpreter right and we also believe in what is known as the I'm throwing sorry I'm throwing all these terms at you the perspicuity of scripture it means that scripture is clear that's what purpose-skewed me. It doesn't mean that every scripture is equally clear. There are difficult texts. So you can learn a lot just from reading the Bible carefully in its context. It's clear. But then there are verses that you come upon, you have to dig a little bit deeper. And with some of these difficult texts, that's what you have to do. 
All right, so we know, we know that Scripture cannot inter- or contradict other Scriptures. Romans 11.5, Paul said this, Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Remember Israel, Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about Israel. It's not about God predestinating Gentiles in the eternity past. It's all about Israel. Past, present, and future. And it has to be taken in this context. But he says this, if by grace, grace means unmerited favor, you don't work for it, then it's no longer of what? Works. They're mutually exclusive. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it is, if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Can't have it that way. Otherwise, work is no longer work. In Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul prayed. He says, my brethren, my, my prayer and heart's desire to God for Israel is that they might what? Be saved. That presumes, in my opinion, that they could all be saved. So the elect in Israel were those who were united to Christ by faith. They were joined to God's elect one, the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith. It's interesting, though. What about those who rejected this repeatedly? The Bible says they were hardened in their persistent unbelief. They weren't hardened from birth. They weren't hardened the first time they heard the gospel. They were hardened by persistent unbelief. Romans verse 7 Chapter 11, what then? Israel, that's the majority of Israel, has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. That's the remnant, and the rest were blinded. They were judicially blinded because of their constant opposition to Christ, which is why Stephen says you, you do always resist the Holy Spirit in that sermon in Acts chapter 7. All right, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Gives us a clear gospel order. Verse 13. In him, that's Christ, you also trusted. And I hope you all have done that. After you heard the what? The word of truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of truth. So he says, in him, Christ, you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So here's the order here. Hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and the sealing by the Holy Spirit, marking a person off as Christ's possession for all eternity from that moment forward. Romans 3, look at Romans 3, verse 25. It says, God sent forth his son, and then you go down to verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who is baptized. My Bible does not say that. My Bible says the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man, and this is very important, you ought to know this verse by now, we conclude that a man is justified by faith 
apart from the deeds of the law. The deeds of the law were works that they had to do. So that latter statement that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of law, it's telling us that faith alone is what justifies a person. So the biblical doctrine of justification is is the article upon which a church stands or falls. And basically, in a nutshell, what is it saying is that you are a sinner. All your righteousness is this filthy rags. That's the sinner's state without Christ. Doesn't matter how much good they do, all of their righteousness is this filthy rags. So they need an alien righteousness. Where are they going to get it? Who, Who is the perfectly righteous one? The Lord Jesus Christ came to take their place, take the penalty for their sin, so that when you put your faith in him, if you're a lost sinner, you receive a righteousness reckoned to your account that you do not have. God sees you as righteous, not because of your works, but because of his son. And if you are in his son, you receive a declaration of righteousness. That's the biblical doctrine. And it's faith alone that apprehends that righteousness. Romans 4.4. 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but, but as a debt. If you work for your employer, he's obligated to pay you. But to him who, what? Does not work, but believes on him who justifies Not the godly, as Roman Catholicism teaches, justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited for righteousness. There is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to the account of the person who has put their faith in him. You understand that, right? You you all get that. So this verse here, Romans 4, 4 and 5, is telling us that faith in Jesus is not a work that you must do in order to be saved. It's not a work, a meritorious work. Salvation is a free gift, and faith merely receives the gift. receives the gift. But baptism, if you had to be baptized in order to be saved and righteous, well, baptism is a work that the sinner has to perform. He's got to get down in the pool, and he's got to be immersed by water. And this verse and the other verses which I've read contradict that teaching. But we do know this, that true saving faith is manifested in good works. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved, how? Through baptism. Through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not only faith, but salvation is the gift of God not of works, nothing could be any clearer, lest any man should boast. But here's, the, the, here's what I said before. True faith is made manifest in works. Verse 10. For, for we are his workmanship, his poem, his creation, in Christ Jesus for good works, or unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God desires us to do good works, but we don't do good works in order to be saved. We do good works because we are saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you want to follow along, 
These are all good verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul told the Corinthians, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through what? The gospel. Now no man, including the Apostle Paul, has the ability to regenerate a person, to give them life. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that by means of preaching the gospel, he was the human instrument in the impartation of spiritual life. The gospel brings life when it's, been, when it's received. And he did this apart from baptism. Because Paul only baptized a handful of people. He said Jesus didn't send him to baptize, but to what? To preach the gospel. And we know that Jesus did not himself baptize anybody. That's amazing. He talks about the gospel. He calls sinners unto himself, but he never mentions, oh, you need to be baptized. Why not? He was sent to seek and to save the lost, and he forgave multitudes of people of all of their sins with no mention of baptism. So let's go back to Acts 2.38 then. I draw your attention to the phrase, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. You can underline that little word, for. It's the Greek preposition, ace. You can just put down a. Some, some say ice. It's ace. Ace. Ace aphesin amartion for the remission of sins. Now, the great grammarian, Greek scholar, A.T. Robertson, said this, and this is, this is a, something you need to pay attention to. He said this, never base a doctrine on a Greek preposition. And he said something even a little bit harsher than that, something to the effect of only a fool would do that. Because prepositions in Greek have a breadth of different meanings and applications. So that's a, that's a good rule to follow. Baptismal regeneration advocates translate that preposition ace in order to receive the remission or forgiveness of sins. You must repent be baptized in order to receive the remission of sins. Here's the problem, and this is why Robertson stated, never base your doctrine on a Greek preposition. Ace can also be translated and is frequently translated upon the remission of your sins. Upon. Because they received remission of sins, they should be baptized as the declaration that their sins were washed away, not by water baptism, but by the blood of Christ. Let me share a couple of verses with you. Again, Acts 2.38, Peter said, Repent, let every one of you baptize in the name of Jesus for or upon the remission of sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there are a lot of Greek grammarians who will take that word, that preposition, ace, for the remission of sins, in, in what they call a causal sense, because of the remission of sins, not Greek, I'm sorry, let me backtrack. Baptismal regenerations will take it in a causal sense 
for the remission of sins, for the remission of sins. It, it, it brings about the remission of sins. Or you could take it in the sense that because causal, their sins have been remitted, they have been baptized. Let me look at a couple of scriptures with you. Matthew 3.11. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Jesus says, I indeed, indeed baptize you with, or John the Baptist, I indeed baptize you with water, and here's the preposition, ace, for repentance. But he who is coming after is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John baptized them on the basis of repentance. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. Now, if the baptismal regenerations were to be consistent, they would have to say that, that the water brought about the repentance. But we know that that can't possibly be true. The repentance must precede what? The baptism. So the repentance came first. So John is saying he was baptizing on the basis of repentance. And a person is baptized because they have received the forgiveness of sins on the basis of their prior repentance. Let me show you more. Matthew 12, 41. We have these here, so you could just follow along up on the screen. Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at. Ace is the preposition. They repented at or upon the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Now this is important. The Ninevites, keep that up there, did not repent in order, in order to receive the preaching of Jonah. They repented as a result, causal, of the preaching of Jonah. So water baptism cannot wash away sin. But there is something that can, right? Hebrews 9.22, according to the law, almost all things are purified by, with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is what? No remission of sins. That's why we sing how precious is the flow that makes us whiter than snow. Right? Nothing but the blood of Jesus can take away our sins. Now, there is also a metaphorical expression associated with baptism in the Bible in numerous places. 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 1. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, in the Old Testament, Exodus, all passed through the sea, and notice what he says, all were baptized, that's the preposition, ace. They were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink. They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So it says here they were baptized into Moses. To be baptized into a person means metaphorically to be identified with that person, to be identified with that person. So by passing under the cloud and through the sea, the nation of Israel was identified with Moses, the leader whom God had called to bring them out of Egypt. 
And because of that association, to be baptized in a person's name identifies you with that person. That is why Paul so strongly objected to anybody being baptized in his name. In 1 Corinthians 1.12, he says, Now I say this, that, that each of you says, so you have these parties in Corinth. The church was very divided. Some are saying, I'm of Paul. Some are saying, I'm of Paulus. Some are saying, I'm of Cephas or Peter. But then there's the real spiritual crowd. These were the really spiritual people who are saying, I am of Christ. Let, let me stop right here and listen to me. You can mark this down. Jesus is not looking to be someone's mascot. He's not looking to be your mascot. He's looking to be your Lord and Savior and for you to follow him. So then Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Because to be baptized with in the name of someone is to be identified with them. So the significance of water baptism is to identify people with Christ. People whose sins have been washed away. Not with Paul or anybody doing the Baptist. Not with the church, but with the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 8.14 Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized, ace, in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the Samaritans' water baptism identified them with Jesus. And then, subsequent to that, they they began to to follow him. But they, they received Christ. So again, but what you want you to see here is they're baptized in the name is an identification with. One that, that will really stick out is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And this is the baptizing of the work, the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit, what we call spirit baptism. Because you have water baptism, which is visible. You have spirit baptism, which is invisible. So when you get saved, the very moment you are saved, and you remember, follow the order that I gave in, in Ephesians chapter 1. You hear the word, you believe the word. And then what? The sealing of the Holy Spirit takes place. So when a person receives Christ Jesus, there is an invisible operation, action that takes place. The Holy Spirit baptizes them into the body of Christ. It's actually Jesus through the Holy Spirit who does that. For by one Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 We were all baptized into, that's the preposition ace again, one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we have all been made to drink into, preposition ace, one spirit. One spirit. Thank God, that's a a beautiful thing. Christ only has one body, one church. He knows every single member of it. The Holy Spirit placed those believers in the body. So back to Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized. Now I'm pointing this out. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in. 
That's a different Greek preposition. That's the Greek preposition epi. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus. And the preposition epi denotes authority. Let every one of you be baptized on the authority of Jesus Christ. Well, where did that come from? Matthew 28. Go ye into all the world and what? Preach the gospel to every creature. What? Baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Teaching them to observe all things. So the authority for baptism is not a church authority. It's the authority of Christ. So if a person has been saved and they reject baptism, they're not hurting me or the leadership of the church. They're they're rejecting the authority of Jesus Christ in this area of their life. And it's important because that's part of the great commission that he gave So, you look at this again. Be baptized upon the authority of Christ for, and that's your preposition, ace, the remission of sins, or on account of the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's important. Just remember that. Conclusion. Peter is commanding those who repent to be baptized in obedience to the authority or the command of Christ in identification with the forgiveness of sins. This is exactly what baptism testifies of. I belong to Christ who has washed away all my sins by the blood that he shed on the cross. So baptism may symbolize cleansing, but it is faith and repentance that apprehend God's forgiveness. That's crucial. Here's a a very significant verse. Pertaining to this matter, do you have to be baptized to be saved? Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Now, you may, you may need this someday with somebody. You may not remember everything, but I'd mark this one down. This is in the house of Cornelius. Peter is preaching to him, Jesus. All the prophets witnessed that through his name... Whoever believes in him will receive what? Remission of sins. And that's what the Bible teaches. Faith in Christ, remission of sins, justification. Now notice verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And those of the circumcision, that's the Jews who believed were astonished as many came with Peter because of the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. Now, when was the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out on the Jews? Acts 2. Pentecost. Now notice this. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. What took place on Pentecost? The Holy Spirit coming in the form of a dove, the place was all shaken up and they began to speak in other languages, tongues. So it was the pouring, outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a unique way, never to be repeated, on the birthday of the church, Pentecost. So they heard them speak with tongues and magnify. Now, now, here in the household of Cornelius, they're doing the same thing. So then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water 
that those should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit as we have, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the, of the Lord. Here's what's important. No person can confess Jesus Christ as, except by the Holy Spirit. No one. He's the one who brings conviction. He's the one who points out their need for a Savior. They received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. Got it? Now, baptismal regeneration, <laughs> that, it has that all mixed up. They say you have to be baptized in order to be saved. But they were saved because they received the Holy Spirit. It's clear. He, they start speaking in, in other languages like at Pentecost, and then they were baptized as a testimony of that. Wow, I only got... I, I, should I go on or should I cut it short? Keep going a little bit. Baptism for the dead. You ever hear about that one? Yeah. <laughs> never, never base a doctrine on a verse that seems to contradict the clear teachings of Scripture and other passages. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. This is probably the last one I'm going to take because I'll never get to John 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Now when, all, now all, when all things are made subject to him, Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what shall they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Strange text, right? Now remember, this is Paul preaching in the the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. And he's, he's speaking rhetorically in many places. And his is one of them. Well, if, if, you, if you are baptizing people for the dead, what's the point if you don't believe in there's no resurrection? Right? What's there, what is there to resurrect? Now, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, commonly called the Mormons, they say this. And they got this from Joseph Smith. Apparently, I guess, a revelation from God. Because he is a loving God, the Lord does not damn those people who through no fault of their own never had the opportunity for baptism. He has therefore authorized baptisms to be performed, performed by proxy for them. These are vicarious baptisms. Some person is baptized in the name of another person. A living person, often a descendant who has become a, a member of the LDS, is baptized in behalf of a deceased person. This work is done by church members in temples throughout the, the world. Temples are crucial to Mormonism. The New Testament indicates that baptisms for the dead were done during the time of the Apostle Paul. They cite this one scripture, this one very ambiguous, difficult scripture. It is unwise, again, to base a doctrine on a Greek preposition or an enigmatic text like this, where there's only one occurrence of it. Of in, the, in the Bible. The phrase baptism for the dead is, a matter of fact, so, so obscure and perplexing as to its meaning that it has led to more than 200 different interpretations. Scholars have wrestled with this over and over again. Let me just say this. A couple points in closing. There is no historical evidence for the practice of baptizing for the dead 
during New Testament times. Other than this obscure reference, you don't see anybody doing this. Paul would not endorse a practice which contradicts his own teachings. And this would contradict his teaching of justification by grace through faith. And matter of fact, it takes it even further because not only does baptismal regeneration, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Not only that, is that heretical? This is further than that. You could be baptized for a dead person. So it takes it even further out. It may be that some of the Corinthians were concerned about believers who died before they could be baptized and, and they feared that, oh, they're going to suffer some spiritual loss. So, you know, let's do this for them. We do know this because Chrysostom mentions it. He's one of the church fathers. There was a pagan sect who did this. They were called the Marcionites, but they were clearly held false doctrine. So baptism for the dead, baptism for those who have died. This is, a, this is a possibility. Paul may have been simply saying that people were being saved and baptized because of the testimony of their, of their loved ones who died. They died. If there is no resurrection from the dead, why is it when so many Christians are being killed for their faith that people are still becoming Christians and being baptized? In other words, replacing the ranks of those who were killed or died or, or, or martyred. So their testimony was impacting them to the extent that they became believers and then they went forward and they were baptized. Now, that seems far out, but there's a lot of people, or a stretch, but there's a lot of people who believe that. So Paul could be referring to a very normal experience, meaning that the death of Christians could lead to the conversion of their survivors who in the first instance, for the sake of the dead, their beloved dead, and in the hope of reunions with them, Turn to Christ, and they're baptized. They're baptized. Um, I'm going to throw one more at you. Not, not a text, but an idea. I mentioned the ritual washings among the Jews previously. And there was an article I read that appeared in the Bible in Spade magazine, good magazine for you interested in archaeology. And the author, who remained anonymous, said the religious groups most concerned with ceremonial washings and cleansings and rituals were who? The Pharisees and the Essenes. The Essenes was a sect in the Dead Sea community around Qumran. John the Baptist, I said, no doubt had contact with the Essenes. They, were, they, they, they had the ritual baths up there in Masada, in, in that whole area. They, they performed daily cleansings and washings to remain clean from all defilements. I mean, if they got their hands dirty in any way, they had to wash it before they did anything. The Pharisees also believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. That's why they were so sad, you see. Right. You heard that before. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection from the dead. So this author says, for people this concerned with ritual cleansing during life, on, on about everything, it is not a stretch of the imagination to think that they would want their dead to be ceremonially cleansed or washed in hopes of the resurrection. So all he's suggesting is that 
baptism for the dead, maybe they were just preparing their dead for some ritualistic way. And he says, so, so thus they washed the corpses of their loved ones as a final pre- preparation. Did the Corinthians pick up on this? And again, just another idea of the some 200 different ideas floating out there. So you just don't go to, uh, to texts like that. It's just not profitable in the end. In looking at this phrase, baptism for the dead, Gordon Fee, who I, in my opinion has written you know, one of the best commentaries on the book of Corinthians, he died not too long ago, he said this, finally, we must admit that we simply do not know. Right? And there are things that we don't know, right? There are secret things that belong to the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 28, I think it is. But the 29, but the things which have been revealed, they are for us. So the, the clear the teachings of the scripture, the perspicuity of scripture, the scripture is clear that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's clear. Don't let any other text obscure that. You may have to wrestle with it. You may never get the exact answer. You know, that's fully satisfactory. But listen, better men than you and I wrestle with these texts. And they just put their hands up and go, you know, I'm not going to bet on my interpretation. (laughs) But you don't base doctrine on it. All right. And next week we'll start off with born of water in the spirit, which is often used by people to refer to baptism as being the cleansing aid for regeneration.